back for another episode of Minute Women. I am one of your hosts, Linnea. And I'm Grace. And we're really excited to share another episode with you. So Grace, what is today's episode about? Today's episode is the infamous Irish Orphans Heritage Minute. Uh, <laughs> probably my favorite episode, hands down. I have a lot of personal <laughs> stories about this one because it was A, Good. my favorite as a child. Yes. And then B, when I was in the third grade, we had to reenact it. I didn't learn anything. From I love that, that process. <laughs> I didn't know what the minute was specifically about, but we had to pick a minute and then we recorded ourselves like reenacting it in the gym. I've also never seen that video, so I don't know if anything ever came of it. You've seen it? Oh, I thought you meant you've never seen that Heritage Minute. And no, I've like, seen the I... Heritage Minute many times. Okay. <laughs> okay, that is really funny. That's yeah. fabulous. In Cape Breton, just little Grace. <laughs> it was actually in Halifax. It was here. Oh, Yeah, education here. is bad everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> just bad all over. We, like, essentially were dressed in, like, bed sheets. <laughs> Pretending we were poor and hungry, approaching the camera, and then we just had to say our names, which are Johnson, Sir Molly Johnson, and then Patrick, Patrick O'Neill, and, and then, then the last child who goes, just says like, <laughs> which I later learned through using uh, closed caption is like Catherine Ryan, which yeah. is not what that small child says. No. She goes hard hard hard. <laughs> Like, it's not English or French. It's like this little girl. And they probably got her to do it, like, 17 times. And then they were just and like, like oh, screw whatever. it. Like, whatever. Don't have enough time <laughs> we... in this dimly lit courtroom scene where an old woman in a bonnet is like, we're good people. We'll <laughs> adopt the children and let them keep their terrible Irish names rather than making them have a French yeah, name. Really the most impactful is Molly Johnson because she's almost like so – there's so much desperation in her voice. Patrick's just like whatever. Like just – Yeah. She's the star. <sighs> but she's the star. I wonder what she went on to do. I don't know. Let's check out her IMDb after this. We should. All yeah. Right. So like, Grace, Grace, tell me – the research that you've done on this specific minute. What what is the backstory of this Canadian moment? So, I had a lot of trouble researching this one okay. initially. Okay. Because you look at the Heritage Minute and you're like, okay, there's these orphans. They're coming to Quebec. They're clearly starving. Potato but, famine. Potato famine. We'll get into that. <laughs> okay, good. But, like, what's it about other than, like, okay... The Quebec people were really nice to the Irish, I guess. Sure. Because the message of that is that Quebec has a really high Irish population, or at least you'd think that. Like, they came to Quebec, and Quebec was the best to them, and that's why it's part of our national heritage. Yeah. But I, like, I was researching, and Quebec has the lowest <laughs> Irish-Canadian population of any province. Okay. I think it's either the lowest or the second lowest. The lowest might be Manitoba. But it their population is 430,000 Irish Canadians, which is pretty high. But proportionally, that's only 5% of the Quebec population. Yeah. So, you're like, what is the point? How is this part of our national heritage? Right. Which, through doing a lot of research for some of these episodes, which will come out at a later point, there's a huge emphasis on presenting Quebec in the nicest possible light. <laughs> Because a lot of these really early heritage minutes come out when Quebec is trying to secede from Canada. Right. So they're like, no public broadcast will say Quebec is a bad province or that we the things that Quebec. they want are bad. We love we Quebec. Love them. And they were super cold to these three Irish orphans. 
So as I was researching it, I was just increasingly getting frustrated about like, I want this minute to be an episode. I have no idea what it's going to be about. But then I think I figured out the event that they're alluding to. Okay. But that event shows Quebec in a way less positive light. Oh. So it's scandalous. This episode is... This oh, this episode is drama, back, back scandal. laden with scandal. Back laden with scandal. <laughs> okay. I'm but ready. But anyways, all right. So let's let's just get into it. Just start with a little bit about like how the Irish come to Quebec, and then we'll get into right. like so. So the I don't I don't know. I, I haven't done any research on it, obviously, <laughs> but I assume that it's like potato famine, like parents have died, like these are orphans who are leaving Ireland. Yes, so that's okay. like part of it. Okay, but the Quebec or sorry, the Irish have been in Quebec for like way longer than that. Okay, so Ireland is the western outpost of Europe and. Just, probably just as many Irishmen arrived in the New World kind of pre-Columbian area okay. era as like Norsemen. So we right. typically think of like Vikings as arriving in North America yeah. first. There's probably just as many Irishmen who are part of those kind of like journeys. Interesting. So Irish monks were supposed to have visited the islands in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, according to archaeological evidence portrayed at the Gaspé Museum, and these demonstrate what appears to have been an established monastic settlement. So, okay. got some dudes. What is monastic? Hanging. They're monks. Oh, okay. So we've got some Irish monks. We got some Catholic stuff going on real early. Okay. These may have been the earliest arrivals of the Irish in the New World. In Quebec's undocumented past, the Irish are theorized to have been the earliest Europeans to arrive in the New World. Before even Viking expeditions, Irish explorers such as Brennan the Bold may have ventured as far as the St. Lawrence River Basin. Brennan but this, the Bold. Brennan the Bold. Brendan the Bold. Oh, Excuse Brendan me, would not want bold. to offend Brendan the Bold. <laughs> Um, But this theory has little concrete evidence to support it. I bet Brendan was really little. (laughs) (laughs) And three years old. He's like, I am bald. (laughs) I am bald, but not old. (laughs) So to understand the real roots of the Irish in Quebec, we have to look back to the relationship between the countries of Ireland and France. So the connection between Ireland and France runs deep. Geographically, the proximity between the two countries has meant a long history of interaction. Also, the strength of Catholicism in both France and Ireland has encouraged alliances both culturally and politically. The French regularly supported Irish uprisings against the Protestant English. By the 17th century, nearly 35,000 Irish served in the French military. Catholics from Ireland seeking refuge from British Protestant persecution, that's a great little tongue twister, (laughs) would often flee to France. Following the Protestant Reformation, many Catholics left Ireland to seek refuge in Catholic countries, and much of the Irish nobility went to serve Catholic monarchs across Europe. As the Irish integrated into French populations, they were also recruited and motivated to help colonize the New World French colonies. Those Catholics stick together, man. (laughs) They just... They breed and they spread out. (laughs) That's what they do. (laughs) That's what Catholics do. That's the Catholic way. (laughs) The Catholic way. Many Irish emigrated to the St. Lawrence River Valley through the 17th century. By 1700, approximately 100 Irish-born families were among the 2,500 families registered in New France, along with an additional 30 families of mixed Irish and French backgrounds. According to historian Peter Toner, the migrations of the 17th and 18th centuries had little permanent impact on Canada, except in Newfoundland, where many Irish 
worked as fishermen and lived in the kind of dire poverty they had hoped to escape by immigration to the New World. Which just makes so much sense (laughs) for Newfoundland's history. (laughs) So it was basically at this point where I was like, why is this a heritage minute? I was just so frustrated. Historians are like, well, it doesn't matter. Yeah, (laughs) none of this is important. Yeah, I even wrote in my notes, again, why is this a heritage minute? (laughs) But anyway. But anyway. Lastly, uh, during the 1700s, the majority of known Irish in Quebec were fairly well off. Uh, This was probably due to the fact that wealthier individuals uh, leave behind more documentation. So it's not necessarily the most accurate representation. It's just wealthy people write more stuff. And so as historians, you see them more in the documented history. They have access to that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, for example, Thomas Moore was one of the earliest established Irish immigrants in Quebec. He was the son of Edmund Moore and Cecile Richardson, and he built a home on the island of Orléans near Quebec City. Hmm. He was employed as a pilot, sea captain, and a privateer from 1686 to 1710. Other common Irish names that arise in Quebec censuses are McCarthy, McCarty, and McNamara. Hmm. There were also Irish living in Quebec under French names like Le Maire and Riel. The French administrators or the Irish who took on French names, though, were probably not the most creative when coming up with French names for themselves because some of the most common surnames for French in Quebec at this time are French, Lirlande, and Lirlandaise, which is French Ireland and Irish. Oh, so <laughs> themselves after countries. <laughs> During this time, a contingent of Irish women arrived in Quebec after their ship was commandeered. These oh. girls were bound for domestic service in Virginia when their ship, an English ship, was captured by the French warships La Briand and Lyra. Now, now, domestic service. Do you mean like housekeeping and nannying? Or yes. do you mean like other services? Well... <laughs> On paper, okay. yeah, they're just house servants. Okay. We don't need to read into it too much, I don't think. Okay. I mean, we can if you want to. No, 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 it's okay. I just... Um, I'm just curious. Let's not, let's not sully the names of these women. They, right. were, they were captured by privateers and right. they were brought to Quebec. They were trying to go clean some floors. They just really wanted to use that swiffer. Okay. Like, and now they can't. So now let's can't. mourn the loss of these women. All they're right. not dead. They just came to Quebec. Cool. Um... And they were then placed into private families and then, quote-unquote, entered voluntarily into the work of their new employers. So essentially they were kidnapped and then they were just like, but they loved it. (laughs) They really enjoyed it. They were like, who needs the hot sun of Virginia when you can have the cold rain in Quebec? The freezing tundra of Quebec. (laughs) Mm, This sounds nice. Not only freezing tundra, under, like, no city. It's just woods. (laughs) Just woods. Mm, What a place to be. So during the industrialization period, more Irish flooded into the New World. The rapidly expanding economy needed cheap labor, and oftentimes poor immigrants had no choice but to work for virtually nothing for extremely long hours in horrible conditions. During the 1840s, I should say, many of the Irish fit that profile perfectly because, (laughs) yes, we have reached the point that we've all been waiting for, the potato famine. Uh, (laughs) Life is rough in Ireland right now. Life's not great. So... The Great Famine, Potato Famine, Great Hunger, mm-hmm. same names for the same thing, yeah. was a period of mass starvation and disease in Ireland from 1845 to 1849. The worst year of the famine was 1847. 
During the famine, about one million people died and a million more emigrated from Ireland, causing the island's population to fall by between 20 or 25 percent. That's crazy. It's not great. Yeah. It's, like, pretty bad. Do you – so do you know anything about the potato famine? Do you know, like, what caused it or anything? I know that there were a lot of potatoes and then there were no potatoes because of some (laughs) type of, I assume, like, a environmental plague. (laughs) 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 <laughs> and then they had nothing to eat in Ireland. And so they scurried and so away. They died on their left. boats. <laughs> yeah. Boat transportation. And then died on the boats too because boats are not good conditions in that time. Boats are not great. I mean, boats are great, but not all the time. Yeah. So, yeah, personally, I have a really like strong fascination with famines. Okay. As a <laughs> historical person, as a historian. Mm, when people can't eat. Because. To have a famine on the level of the potato famine, you need everything to be going wrong. So it's not just that you're losing potatoes. There is this huge structural issue in your country for people to not have enough food. So yes, the potato famine is ostensibly caused by the potato blight, which is the environmental plague thing that you're talking about. Okay, okay. Um, So it's a disease that kills potatoes. Sad. Um, I love potatoes. Potatoes are great. Yeah. Underrated. What's your favorite kind of potato? Oh, gosh. If you say russet, you're wrong. (laughs) Okay, because it's like, I really like blue potatoes. They're cool. Oh, yeah, they're fun. Yeah, they're flavorful. I have a little brother who would puke anytime he'd eat the red skins Um, potatoes. Yeah. Don't know what it is Even without the skin on them? Pretty sure, yeah. Crappy. But definitely when the skins were on. Yeah, that's rough. I like Yukon Gold. Oh, Yukon Gold are good. They're expensive. They make good mashed potatoes. They do make great mashed. Yeah. Anyways, so the potato blight is a disease that kills potatoes, a major food staple in Ireland. Mm -hmm. However, this blight happened all over Europe during the same period of time. Oh, that I did not know. Yeah, so it even happened here. It was happening in Nova Scotia, and that's a big reason that Irish immigrants don't stop in Nova Scotia. They keep going to Quebec. Because there is also potato famine here. So why would they set up shop here? Well, they don't have potatoes. Here being Nova Scotia. Yeah. Okay. So it happens everywhere. It happens here. Uh, However, only around 100,000 people in the rest of Europe died as a result of the blight. So why is the blight so much worse in Ireland? And that's a complicated web of problems. So to begin, in the 18th century, a system of land management was introduced called the middleman system, where all the responsibilities of landlords were placed in the hands of middlemen agents. So middlemen were all encouraged to subdivide the plots of land tenant farmers worked so they could collect more rent from more families. So essentially, Yeah, exactly. It's just like taking an acre of land and then you're like, you know what, I'm going to split that in half, make almost double the money. Yeah. This resulted in tiny farms for basically everyone who was a tenant farmer in Ireland. The only crop that could feed a family and produce enough surplus to afford rent were... Potatoes! Potatoes were introduced to Ireland from the New World in the 16th century as a garden crop for the gentry. Initially, it was not a popular food, but by the 17th century. Versatile! (laughs) They didn't appreciate that. I think the first, like, one of the earliest stories of potatoes being introduced to England is like. Did they try to eat them like apples? No, but like Queen Elizabeth or whoever, they eat the greens. They don't eat the the tuber, so they got sick. And that's part of the reason it wasn't popular. Idiots. Yeah, they just didn't know what they were doing. No. They never know what they're doing. 
So initially, it's not a popular food, but by the 17th century, it had become a widespread supplementary food to the Irish dietary staples, which include milk, (laughs) grain, and butter. (laughs) So you have milk, grain, butter, potatoes. It's just the beigest dish. (laughs) And the highest in, like, (laughs) we want fats and carbohydrates. We want carbs and we want starch. Yeah. That's how you build a good little Irishman. Yeah. (laughs) I wish I could do an Irish accent. (laughs) That would make this all funnier. So eventually potatoes become a staple for the lower class diet. The widespread dependency on potatoes created very little genetic variety in the types of potatoes that were being grown in Ireland. In the people eating eating them. (laughs) You have inbred people eating inbred (laughs) potatoes. And that's not good for fighting off disease. No. Um, The expansion of tillage led to an inevitable expansion of potato acreage and an expansion of the number of peasant farmers. So by 1841, there were over half a million peasant farmers with 175 million dependents. So that's like farmers and then their families. Mm -hmm. The principal beneficiary of this system was the English consumer who was able to increase their consumption of beef raised in Ireland. So that's the other thing. Like other things are being grown in Ireland. It's just everyone is so poor that they can't afford any other types of food. So beef that's being raised in Ireland is all getting sent to England because they can sell it for a higher price there. Those poor little Irish children. Poor little Irish children who want to keep their Irish names. (laughs) (laughs) So when the blight arrived in Ireland, there were roughly 3 million people who were entirely dependent on the revenue and foodstuffs from potato crops. The failure of the crops meant rampant starvation and a total destabilization of Irish society. The first major crop failure came in 1845 when between one-third and one-half of cultivated acreage in Ireland failed. So, like, one-half of all the land is bad. Oh, my gosh. It's not good. It gets, <laughs> but wait, it gets worse. Oh, gosh. That's going to be the catchphrase for this podcast. But wait, it gets worse. <laughs> the following year's failures were as high as three-quarters. Even though the crops were healthy in 1847, there was so little seed that starvation continued. So the potatoes were so bad that they just didn't have any seed to grow any potatoes the next year. In 1848, this was the last major year of the famine where one third of the crops failed. Government aid was slow and ineffective. Of course. Of course. (laughs) Welcome to the government. (laughs) Especially the English government treating anybody else. Like like, Irish, uh, Canada, anywhere. We have things to do. Sorry, <laughs> but uh, just just don't have the time. I'm just eating my I just crumpets. Eat all Irish beef. <laughs> Why don't you just try something else? <laughs> um, there was a strong liberal sentiment discouraging welfare and government aid. So, like, the philosophy of the time is that charity makes people lazy. Oh, so no. don't give people charity. Because it just encourages them to want more charity rather than to go get a job. Oh, dear. Yeah. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. (laughs) The poor laws, however, were revised in 1847 to better address the situation in Ireland. So that did, because the famine was so bad, the English had to care. (laughs) It was that bad. They're like, oh, oh, they're all dead. Yeah. So for Canada and the U.S., the result of the Irish potato famine was mass immigration of Irish fleeing the famine. 
Irish had been arriving in Quebec in large numbers since the 1830s when smaller famines had taken place. So that's the other thing. There's already famines taking place in the 30s. Yeah, this it's is just, just a big 40s one. The 40s were real bad. It's a big one. Yeah. During the 1830s, an outbreak of cholera had spread from India to England and Ireland and then subsequently to Quebec aboard emigrant ships. In 1832, the Governor General of Canada, Lord Aylmer, established a provincial board of health and two quarantine stations controlled by the army. One built at Gaspé and the other just down the river from Quebec City at Grosse Isle. Ships from Europe from then on were required to stop for inspection at these stations. Mm -hmm. Dr. George Mellis Douglas had served as the Justice of Peace for the Gaspé District since 1831. In 1832, he was appointed to medical superintendent of the Gaspé quarantine. He worked there until 1836 when Sounds he Sounds like a thrilling job. <laughs> <laughs> Operating a quarantine? I'm in charge of the quarantine. <laughs> you... Yeah, you can't come in. <laughs> you... You stand here until you die. But what if he was just really lonely one day? He's just like... No, guys, like, you you gotta, like, stay. Let's, like, <laughs> let's just, like, hang out for a little bit. No, you don't have smallpox, but, like, what if we just wanted to chill? Let's just hang out. I'm lonely. I'm real. It's on an island. <laughs> an island. In the St. Lawrence River. And his River. name's Malice. Like, he's not the, he That's must not be name. the nicest guy. <laughs> so he worked there until 1836, and then he took over the gross ill quarantine, so the other quarantine. Okay. And that's where he built his home and life. And so we have arrived finally at I'm what ready. I think this Heritage Minute is actually about. Okay. The gross ill quarantine site. Shit's going to go down. All right. I'm ready for it. All right. The quarantines were in no way prepared to handle the number of Irish immigrants who would arrive during the Great Famine. Of course not. Of course Of course. Not. No one could have seen this coming, even though that there were famines in the 30s. Yeah. In 1846, over 32,000 immigrants... Uh, the great majority of whom were Irish, arrived in the port of Quebec. Dr. Douglas recalled the Irish crop failures in 1831 and the heavy immigration, cholera, and high mortality that had accompanied them. So, in 1847, he wrote the Legislative Assembly of the Province of Canada uh, and told them that he feared this year would be even worse than last. S.O.S. Help, please. He, he is throwing <laughs> up flags. He's like, please, please, How somebody... Many can anybody? <laughs> you can't. Like, copywritten. You can't sing that song. He just wants <laughs> just to help. red flags left, right, He's center. He's just like, help me, <laughs> please help me help you. Yeah. <laughs> I I know what's gonna happen. <laughs> he also believed that the issues of immigration would be heightened because the United States was taking efforts to curtail Irish immigration. So the United States was like, well, we don't want you anymore. America. Who could have seen our current <laughs> political climate coming? <laughs> he believed 1847 would be characterized also by a great amount of sickness and mortality. To better prepare gross ill, he asked the legislation for £3,000 to cover some immediate costs and for permission to hire a hospital steward and the service of a steamship. At the same time, a quarter million emigrants were leaving Ireland, crammed onto ships that hoped to arrive in the New World. Oh, no. <laughs> Not all of these would wind up in Quebec, but I will say the year previous was only 32,000. Okay. Now we're dealing with 250,000 potential Irish arriving. And that's just Ireland. That's not other countries. Uh-oh. <laughs> this is our climax. <laughs> we've, reached, we've reached the point of no return. The point where you go, oh. 
Like in yeah. retrospect, you're just like, that's not great. Crap. <laughs> <laughs> if only we could have seen this coming. <laughs> Malnutrition, poor sanitation, and illness were so rampant aboard these transport ships that the vessels earned the nickname Coffin Ships. <laughs> that can only mean good things. <laughs> yes, all good things happen on the coffin ships. <laughs> In coffins. <laughs> As the winter storms began to end in spring, the coffin ships started arriving at Gross Ill. So... St. Lawrence River freezes during the winter, yeah. so you have just kind of like a flood in the spring. Right. Dr. Douglas informed the Governor General on May 17, 1847, when the first vessel arrived, saying, All the sick now are in the hospital, and they are all from one vessel, the Syria, being the first and only emigrant vessel that has yet arrived. The vessel left Liverpool on the 24th of March, having on board 241 passengers recently arrived from Ireland. Many were in a weak state when they embarked, and all were wretched and poor. Disease, fever, and dysentery broke out a few days after leaving port and has gone on increasing until now. Nine died on the passage and one upon landing here, and there are 84 who are now inmates at the hospital, and I fully expect from 20 to 24 more will have to be admitted. So that's the first day. Oh, no. <laughs> that's day one. That's day one. This guy has the best job. <laughs> he loves this life. He just life. knows it's coming. He's like, oh, God. <laughs> Douglas went on to explain that he had received word that a total of 10,600 immigrants had left Ireland by the 19th of April, and he had every reason to believe that many of them would also need to be admitted to the hospital at the quarantine station. At the time, the hospital was barely able to accommodate the sick that they currently had admitted, being a hospital of only 60 beds. <laughs> It's just comical it's now. It's just really sad. It's so sad. It's funny. It's like, uh, <laughs> uh, over the next history, <laughs> history, we've never been able to do anything right. Over the next few days, eight more vessels arrived at Grossell, each transporting just as many six emigrants. Douglas stated, not a bed to lay the invalids on. I never contemplated the possibility of every vessel arriving with fever as they do now. By the end of the week, 17 additional vessels appeared at the quarantine station. They had left port with 5,607 passengers, had lost a total of 260 during the voyage, and more than 700 of the remainder were ill. I just can't even cope with all these numbers. Like, it's just so many bodies just not doing well. <laughs> just, like, flying some stats at you just, right now. Just know that it's really bad. I didn't know this was a math podcast. <laughs> It's also been a week. <laughs> okay. So it's like as soon as the ice is gone from the river, they're all just pouring in. Yeah. Um, two days later, the number of vessels had reached 30 with 10,000 immigrants waiting to be processed and let into Quebec. And this man, what is his name again? So his name is Douglas. Douglas. Dr. Douglas. Douglas is just crying now. <laughs> Douglas it's is also just, just him in the, for the fetal most part. position, just crying because <laughs> he really is just like, it's never going to stop. It's never going to stop. Never ending. By May 29th, 12 days after the arrival of the Syria, so we're 12 days in to okay. his, his journey, okay. uh, 36 vessels were docked at Gross Ill with 12,450 people in quarantine. So now nobody can leave the boats because they can't even dock. Mm -hmm. Like the island is not big enough for 36 ships. 
Oh, dear. <laughs> Chief Immigration Agent Alexander Buchanan raised the issue that they had no sufficient funds or means to feed the people in quarantine. Well, screw that guy. He's just, he's <laughs> just a no downer. Money. He's I like, got no money. oh, hey, just wanted to give you a little shout out that I can't help you at all. <laughs> Have a great day. Goodbye. Did you, like, not tell them to pack a lunch <laughs> before they left? Like... Like, what kind of guest arrives to your house hungry, you know? Don't they have lots of potatoes out there? I thought they were known for potatoes. Screw that guy. So Buchanan said the allowance of a pound of biscuit or oatmeal, which the law obliged the master to issue, is not sufficient for their support. He continued, much of the present disease and sickness is, I fear, attributed for want of sufficient nourishing food. Yeah, we know. Yeah. That's why they left. Yes, we... <laughs> They're hungry. <laughs> they are starving. Thanks, Buchanan. From a famine. <laughs> what does famine mean to you, Grace? Does it mean... Famine means Full love. Belly. Oh, sorry. I thought you said family. Um. <laughs> no, no, no. Maybe that's what he thought, too. Oh, you said potato famine. famine. I mean, I said oh. potato family. Oh, this makes more sense. Yeah, I can't help you. Sense. Sorry, I can't help you anyways. <laughs> he urged the appointment of a commission of three medical persons with extraordinary powers to oversee the emergency, suggesting that Dr. Douglas be one of the selected. Buchanan added that the Marine and Immigrant Hospital in Quebec, which had already admitted 50 cases, was also in a state of unpreparedness. The governor general immediately appointed a commission of three medical persons in compliance with Buchanan's recommendations, but did not include Dr. Douglas as a member. So the only guy who's been on the ground since day one. Yeah. He's like, uh, I don't think that's necessary. <laughs> um, he's thanks. just jealous. Yeah, he's just jealous. Governor general is yeah. so jealous of Douglas and we don't know why. Uh, thanks for all your hard work, but uh, continue crying in the fetal position. <laughs> Stay on your little island. <laughs> By the end of the month, 40 ships formed a line three kilometers long down the St. Lawrence River, and the military was deployed to assist the island. Three kilometers? Three kilometers. Like, I, that's, that's tough to walk. <laughs> when I see that distance on Google Map, I think, maybe I'll yeah, take a bus. Maybe I'll take a cab. Maybe I'll take a cab. Due to the lack of space on Gross Hill, Dr. Douglas required healthy passengers to stay on the ships for 15 days or more uh, once the sick had been removed by way of quarantine. So the sick were taken off the ships, but if you were healthy, you had to sit on the dark, damp, sick, <laughs> littered ship. And get sick. And get sick. Oh, <laughs> once you're sick, you can come off. But if you're healthy, you stay on the ship. Your immune system will fight it. Your starved immune system. <laughs> Infection flourished on board the ships. Duh. <laughs> One ship, the Agnes, reached Gross Ill with 427 passengers, of whom only 150 would survive the quarantine period. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, Effing out. <laughs> this is gross negligence. Where are the children? Where is Molly Johnson? <laughs> well, she survived, evidently. Bless. Bless. Uh, healthy passengers needed to deboard the ships faster. Therefore, Douglas recommended to the Legislative Assembly that, quote, the best means of carrying out this order, that all healthy should be landed on a small island called Cliff Island, situated a distance a thousand yards from Gross Ill, end quote. Buchanan responded by sending Douglas 275 tents. <laughs> 
Buchanan stated, I have since heard from Dr. Douglas, and he has placed the tents under Robert Sims' charge, uh, who was one of the Quebec these police force. These are the year 1800s tents, okay? Like, these are... They're not good. These are not tents. I'd be pissed if someone sent me a tent now. Yeah, and the tents now are fine. Like, mech, a mech tent? That's good. I'd Sponsor still be pissed. Mech. Yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah, like, if... if so my apartment got hit during the hurricane, and I got evacuated. Right. And if someone was like, hey, Grace, don't worry. You can't get your apartment for a couple months, but here's a tent. I would pull a Dr. Douglas and fetal position cry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, just cry. All right. Uh, so, conti- so he sent tents. So he sent tents, and Buchanan is telling the Legislative Assembly uh, that he's heard from Dr. Douglas, and Dr. Douglas has placed the tents under the charge of Robert Sims, who is a Quebec police officer. Because Douglas officer. can't cope right now. Douglas needs help. Douglas, Douglas is like he's a one man show right now. <laughs> I can't. So they were sent with instructions to erect the tents on uh, Cliff Island for the reception of healthy immigrants, which it may be necessary to land. So necessary to get them off the boats. Douglas left with Sims to inspect Cliff Island and returned pronouncing it impossible to pitch tents there. The rocky nature of the soil rendering it unfit for driving pegs. (laughs) I could have told you that. I wasn't even there. Uh, Yeah, it's too rocky, guys. It's called Cliff Island. <laughs> I wasn't expecting pasture land. Oh, you thought there was going to be grass here? Wrong. Oh, you thought this would be good? It's just cliffs. No, this is bad. All it's of this is bad. Cliffs. Steep cliffs. Also, where'd they get 275 tents so fast? There's no Walmart. There was only one space on Gross Ill to deboard people who needed immediate medical attention. So Douglas explained to land the poor wretches weakened by the long fasting and privation on the rocks without covering and destitute as many are of everything but rags that cover them will only increase mortality. So he's saying don't take them off the boats. (laughs) It's no better on the island. I know they want to be off the boats, but it's not good to get off the boats. I'm just like, poor Douglas. Poor Douglas. (laughs) I just want to give him a hug. I know. Therefore, the healthy remained on their coffin ships. Shipmasters were advised to open the bow ports and the stern ports and knock down bulkheads and midship berths to uh, essentially just bring fresh air into the ships. Oh, do you do know you, what those things are? I was just going to tell you. Would you <laughs> like me. to know what bulkheads are? <laughs> Please bestow me with your boat knowledge. <laughs> so bulkheads are basically just like the roof. Like the oh. – so, so basically – Like the deck? Not the deck, more so like there, there's like this joke that if you're cleaning on a ship, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go. I'm going to go like inspect the bulkheads, which just means you're like laying in your bunk, like looking oh, okay. up. So it's just the like that first level of wood like above your head, like before the deck. Gotcha. Yeah. So it would just be like cutting out like the basically that to like allow air to come through oh, like, okay. from the deck to like it like. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. What are the midship berths? The midship berths? Yeah. What's a berth? What's so a berth so midships is like the center, like the not center, but the middle of the ship. So it would just be, I, I, I assume it would just be like taking out where you would like go down below decks. Oh, okay. Yeah. I got to imagine these ship captains are pissed. They're like, okay, yeah. I get it. Like these people are really sick, but like you're asking me to ruin my boat. Yeah. So daily whitewashing was also prescribed, so washing it with lime, I presume. Yeah. Where possible, sheds and tents were constructed on gross sale to accommodate some of the immigrants. So now we're in June. We're about six weeks in. 
In June, Douglas started recommending that healthy passengers after 10 to 15 days of quarantine be transported to Quebec by steamer. So remember early on, he wanted he a steamship. He must have got it because this is what he's doing now. <laughs> At least they could do that for him. I could have figured that part out as the researcher for this, but you know, we're just going to roll with it. <laughs> just going to roll. He got a nice boat. <laughs> Doctors on gross ill were severely overworked. So he does have like some medical attendants. It's just like he's the only one in charge. Yeah. And I don't think he has anybody helping him. <laughs> So doctors on gross ill were severely overworked, making proper care of sick patients both in quarantine and aboard vessels nearly impossible. Mm -hmm. Life aboard the vessels was anxious and fearful. Robert White, the synonym of the author who wrote the memoir The Ocean Plague, A Voyage to Quebec in an Irish Emigrant Vessel, <laughs> described what it was like when his ship, the Ajax, arrived at gross ill. Typically, passengers would dress in their best clothes, expecting to de-board in their new country. So everybody's, like, in their Sunday best because they're like, I'm going to see land after so many weeks at sea. Instead, doctors would board the vessel and quickly inspect each person for illness before leaving not to be seen for days. As the summer continued, the inspections became less and less. Feverish passengers were cleared as healthy and sent to Quebec on steamships, only to succumb to their illness once they left Grosseil. There was a great fear of an epidemic spreading to the urban residents, as had occurred during the cholera plagues of the 1830s. Well, back on that cholera. We're back on that cholera. Some citizens, French and indigenous, collected money for the relief of the Irish. Not all responses were charitable, though. Others mobilized to keep treatment centers out of their neighborhoods, 490 inhabitants of Point Levy, in great alarm and terror, petitioned to the governor general to prevent the erection of hospitals and other buildings in their district. Ooh. So some people were nice. Most people were Those people idiots about it. Yeah. Mismanagement on gross ill resulted in the establishment of a special committee to inquire into the state of affairs at the quarantine station in June. By this point, there were over 25,000 immigrants either on the ships or in the hospital. Mm -hmm. The special committee submitted their report on the 28th of July. By then, Dr. Douglas abandoned the quarantine regulations because they were impossible to enforce. His new instructions were that the healthy would be released after a cursory check by a doctor. Okay. <laughs> Which would have been better if they'd been doing that from Finally. the get-go. It's like, you seem pretty healthy. Get off the boat. Get off the boat. <laughs> The report consisted mainly of minutes of evidence of witnesses who were personally involved in the events. So they're essentially, like, doing a full investigation into this mismanagement because it's so awful. And the report is largely just, like, the courtroom minutes. They found poor conditions on the island and an inefficient distribution of food. Quote, in the new buildings and hospital, cleanliness was pretty well observed, but not so in the old sheds and tents, where filth was allowed to accumulate in the chamber vessels and to create a most disagreeable stench. I have seen both in the tents and the sheds sick persons who had been lying there the whole night until the late morning in close proximity. So it's essentially just a bunch of sick people laying in a tent. It's just depressing. It's not great. It's not a good time. This was not a good time for Canada. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you want this one to be more fun? Right? <laughs> there are often two and sometimes three to a bed. And in the old sheds, such was almost invariably the case. And in the tents, very so often. Corpses were allowed to remain all night in the places where death had occurred, even when they had a companion <laughs> in the same bed. Oh, God. 
the dead were also not being taken care of. During my first visit this year, the graves were not dug to a sufficient depth. Coffins were piled one over the other, and the ground covering the upper row in some instances when you was said not this was more gonna, than a foot deep. When you said this was going to get worse. It's going to get so much worse. <laughs> and generally speaking, about a foot and a half. So graves are a foot deep. I mean, they say at least six. Oh, my <laughs> God. Douglas was allowed to respond to the inquiry, noting the lack of staff and resources made available to him. He contended that he tried to visit every vessel once a day. Furthermore, many of the problems observed, like the depths of the graves, had since been addressed and remedied. He insisted that the problems had not occurred because the monopoly of power that had been given to him over the quarantine island, but rather, quote, the impossibility of obtaining medical men and attendants for the sick. Both fall ill from two or three weeks after their arrival, just as they begin to understand the routine of duty. So essentially what he's saying is, it's not my fault because I had all the power. It's your fault because you didn't give me enough doctors. And when you did give me doctors... They got sick. And I mean, I don't know if he's wrong. He's not 100% wrong. He was having a rough go. But, like, also, I know that we didn't talk about this stuff then, but, like, PTSD, like, the trauma he is dealing with during this. Oh, it's not good. Like, he is, he's in, he's, he's in rough shape. And such is the nature with this podcast, it gets worse. (laughs) Okay. So the problems on Gross Ill were slowly dealt with over the course of the summer of 1847, with no clear solution other than to just wait it out. By October, ice had started to form in the St. Lawrence, and this prevented any more ships from entering the river. now? So yeah, the only solution to the problem was to wait for winter, and then boats can stop. They can't make it anymore. Oh my god. So the ice forming in the St. Lawrence River prevented any more ships from entering and immigration for the year ceased, which then ended the crisis of the year 1847. Grosse remained a quarantine station well into the 20th century. In 1849, Douglas treated 50 cholera patients on Grosse Ale. Dr. Anthony von Ifland was, <laughs> Ifland? Hi- was hired as his assistant in 1853. Is he, uh, is he from Deutschland? He's <laughs> from Ikea. <laughs> So he was hired in 1853 as his assistant. The two did not get along, and eventually Douglas left for England, where he married and had a family. Good for Douglas. He's Man, like, good for him. He needed to get out. It gets worse. <laughs> he eventually returned full-time to Gross Ill in 1863, where he resumed his post as medical superintendent. He was sick and depressed. No, man. I, well, I told you. I know that he's sick and depressed. And he learned in March of 1864, so the next year, that steps were being taken to again appoint Ifland to his, uh, the position that he had had before. So once again, he's going to have to work with Ifland. No, we don't like that guy. So on the 1st of June, he went to Il Oruyo. Don't know how to pronounce that, which he uh, had acquired in 1848, and that's where he built his home, but it was still heavily mortgaged. So 1st of June, he goes to this new island where he acquired land, and he builds a home, but the home is heavily mortgaged. Okay. That evening, he stabbed himself and died the next day. Oh, man. The coroners returned a verdict of suicide while temporarily deranged. So (sighs) what I think is being implied 
is that he hated Iflin so much well, that he and killed himself. All the crap he'd been through. <laughs> like, what a year. That's a year. You're saying that this is June. So so this is decades later. Oh, so sorry, you have sorry, sorry, sorry. you have the issues in the 40s. Then he, for like a decade in the 50s to the okay, early okay, 60s, okay. he's in England where he marries and has a family. So I'm pretty sure his wife them. died. Oh, Didn't add that here, but I'm pretty sure his wife died. And then... Shortly after he's rehired at Gross Ill, he finds out he's going to have to work with Iflin again. And that's like <laughs> the straw that broke the kills that. It's deranged. like, fuck that guy. <laughs> I can't. I can't deal. So we went to his home and killed himself. Uh, R.I.P. Not to laugh about it. but Oh, another fact. If this is your first time tuning in to um, Minute Women podcast, everybody we talk about. They're all dead. They're all dead. Okay. Well, some of them are a yes. little, but so this far, one, everybody's we'll dead. Well, you know, everyone <laughs> in this story that we're talking about, dead. dead. Yeah. <laughs> so the station, uh, Grosell Station, was closed in 1932. So it was open for a long time. Man. During the Second World War, it was used by the Department of National Defense to research bacteriological warfare, such as the manufacturing of anthrax. Oh, man. In 1956, it was converted into a quarantine site for animals. Okay. And in 1974, the Gross Ill Quarantine Station was declared a national historic site and it is now operated by Parks Canada. So we can go there. We can go there. Field trip. Now, I, I do want to take a step back real quick. Okay. So around what time do you believe as historian Grace? Mm-hmm. That Molly Johnson and that crew were rolling through and getting adopted. So they obviously didn't have so any of the illnesses that kept them from being stuck on the ships. So when I was researching okay. this, essentially at the quarantine station, the team so like the team eventually had to remove like two thousand two hundred corpses from the ships. Right. And these bodies... Mrs. and the, Mr. Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Namely, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson. <laughs> okay. And they examined over 90,000 immigrants, and they buried 5,424 over the course of 1947. What? So almost 5,500 people die. Okay. Um, <laughs> the vast majority of these deaths were attributed to the epidemic of typhus. So that's what they figured out was the illness going through all of these people. Okay. And... This doesn't include the ships that were stopping at other quarantine stations. Like, this is just the one. There were other ships going to other places as well. So in Montreal, for example, 6,000 Irish immigrants were buried that year. And they didn't really know about the remains until they were building the Victoria Bridge, apparently. And they came across them. And then they built a memorial. But to the (laughs) point of orphans, um, the number of child immigrants who became orphaned in 1847 was unprecedented. Uh, Gross Ill usually dealt with around 10 orphans per year. But there were over 100 in less than a month into the 1847 navigation season. So that's where little Molly came from. So that's likely the cause of it. So by the year's end, there were thousands of children who had become orphans. The exact number is hard to determine given that many were informally placed out so they didn't actually go through the formal process that they demonstrate in the Heritage Minute. Is it true that they kept their names? Yeah, Is that real? That is true. I think like a lot of them were able to keep their names. It's just like polishing a turd though you're like this one nice thing we did yeah on top of all of this mismanagement which is the reason you're an orphan most right likely. which is why they made the heritage minute and yeah. as you were saying like to keep 
Quebec really happy. Yeah. Let's just bring out one nice thing that happened. And the other reason I'm pretty sure that that's what this Heritage Minute is about is because as I was researching it at the very end, because I needed to find, like, the total death tolls and stuff, Mm -hmm. I wound up on the Canadian Encyclopedia entry for Grosville National Historic Site, and this Heritage Minute was linked on the page. Uh, I was right. And it says and those numbers. That's all that matters. It does say numbers at the end of the Heritage Minute, so I feel like Do those they? numbers. Yeah, oh, I, I believe so. That. that they're like this many. This many people, people were orphans. Were orphaned. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd probably find them there. So interesting. That is the tragedy of Gross Hill Quarantine Station in 1847. Man, that was a. Which results in at least three orphans from the Heritage Minute. <laughs> Molly and Patrick, Patrick and, and her. Yeah, whatever her no name is. No one knows what that little girl's saying. <laughs> wow. Wow. That, that Real sad. wasn't a feel-good one, for sure. <laughs> not, there's not really a high note. The end, the end is that he kills himself. So. <laughs> and Molly has yeah. a family. <laughs> well, yeah. And she got to keep her Irish name. Yep. Johnson. Johnson. Molly Johnson. (laughs) All right, so that's all for today's episode of Minute Women Podcast. Yeah, so make sure you go follow us on Instagram, Minute Women Podcast. Uh, Our Facebook page, same thing. We also have a Twitter. And just make sure to rate and review us wherever you choose to listen to your podcasts. Yeah, come on. It only takes a second. All right, thanks, guys. Bye. (laughs) 